Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back for another episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. And I am really excited to let you know that I have with me today Vikas Anand, professor at the Walton College of Business. Hi, Vikas. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for inviting me, Cindy. You are absolutely welcome. It is my honor. And Vikas not only serves as a professor and has for many years at Walton College, he also is a member of my academic advisory committee and has been a big help to me over the last few years. So currently Vikas is a professor in our strategy, entrepreneurship and venture innovation department. And he is also the executive director of the MBA programs and graduate innovation. And Vikas, like I said, has been with Walton College for a long time, since 1999, after he completed his PhD in management at Arizona State University. And during his nearly 21-year career at Walton College, he has done so many exceptional things in the way of teaching and research and service. So let me tell you just a little bit about it before we dive in. Vikas is universally recognized as one of the best teachers on campus. He's won 12 teaching awards at the college and the university level since 2007. He's also a member of the University of Arkansas's Teaching Academy. And as you can imagine, Vikas has touched the lives of many of our students and is one of their favorite professors. I hear that about you frequently, Vikas. <laughs> he also has an international reputation for his research and in studying decision-making, ethics in corruption. And in fact, his paper titled Business as Usual, the Acceptance and Perpetuation of Corruption in Organizations, won the Academy of Management Executive 2005 Best Paper Award. And it was one of the featured articles in a special, episode, uh, special issue that recognized the top 10 most influential papers in 20 years in the AME publications. That's quite an honor. Congratulations. On top of all that, of his teaching and his research, he also has served in very many important administrative roles for Walton College in the last 14 years. Too many to mention here, so I'll mention just a few. He's been the executive director of the Innovation and Strategy Planning Group, the chair of the Department of Management, and executive director of the MBA programs and graduate innovation. Vikas, that is quite a storied career, and you are beginning a new chapter here shortly. Um, so let me be the first to tell you and our audience, congratulations. And it is bittersweet though, to tell you that. Um, Vikas is leaving later this spring to join uh, North Carolina State University as the Associate Dean for Programs in the Poole College of Management. You will be sorely missed Vikas. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Cindy. It's, it's a real honor. And I appreciate being invited and thank you for all the kind things you said. Always <laughs> said if you work long enough, you end up with a lot of lines on the resume. So don't want to overblow those things either. So 
Well, as uh, an individual, I just have really enjoyed getting to know you and we share um, a special love of the topic of ethics and integrity and uh, corruption and compliance and governance, risk management, all of that. And and you have um, a really quite an interesting, um, I think, personal story in that regard that kind of brought you to where you are today. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you on the podcast. So Vikas, we have been talking uh, in season two and now in season three with a number of academic thought leaders, uh, business thought leaders and practitioners about the future of business ethics. And it all really comes from an article that was written in the Harvard Business Review over 25 years ago now uh, called What's Wrong with Business Ethics? And interestingly, it still comes up near the top of a, of a Google search for business ethics. Um, and when I talked to the author, Andy Stark, who I also interviewed about that, he and I agreed that it was really time to bring that body of, uh, of research forward and um, to talk about not only the progress we've made in the last 25 years, both in how it's taught and how it's practiced, but also to look into the future and to predict what does business ethics need to look like in the next 25 years? So let me ask you what you think about where it is today. At the time the article was written 25 years ago, Vikas, it was criticized as being too general and too philosophical and too impractical. Do you think that still applies? Where do you think we are today? I think like most, uh, like most topics, most areas of research, the area of business ethics has evolved. Um, you know, at the time the article was written, um, business ethics was not at the forefront of most managers' minds. If you looked at most business schools, uh, there was an optional class on business ethics. And I had one such in my MBA program where we were told to be good effectively. And, um, and I think part of it was that for some reason it was seen that white collar workers usually, which is where most business students ended up, are not going to be doing anything wrong. There was that implicit assumption. And in some ways, I think the scandals that happened with Enron, with uh, Parmalat, all around the world, it brought into focus that yes, there is a problem and it's acute and something needs to be done. So there was a convergence of forces on a, there was first of all, the fact that social media had made information more widely available. Right. Made, made us much more aware of both the challenges of ethics and corporations and the consequences of unethical behavior. Uh, there was a huge effort in the governments of many of the countries in the world to bring in legislation to address corporate crime. And simultaneously with it, we began to see an evolution in how we began to think about ethics. So from being primarily um, research driven from a psychological perspective about why people are bad, why they make wrong choices, 
a more nuanced understanding of ethics began to emerge. Mm -hmm. I think till about 2001, the predominant thoughts on ethical decision-making were the bad apple and the bad barrel approach, which Linda Trevino had brought in, which is still relevant, very relevant from the psych psych psychology traditions. But then we began to think that, well, there are other ways of looking at it. For instance, is it possible that there's an environment which makes people make choices which are unethical? Uh, because we had to come to terms with the fact that when we are looking at unethical behavior, uh, there's the right and then there's the wrong and then there's the in-between. Right. And one of the biggest challenges that we began to understand when we began to look at the traditions of sociology and some more macro psychology was that it's not that people are choosing to be wrong. It's just that they begin to think that sometimes the wrong things they are doing are actually right. right. So I'm probably not as much of a pessimist about where we were and where we are going. I feel, I see that as a natural evolution. Yeah, a natural progression and evolution. And it's become uh, more behavioral, social science based, a little less philosophical, more practical. So Vikas, before you got into the teaching profession and becoming a professor, you had your own career, uh, your own corporate career. And you have shared with me how some experiences you had uh, when you were working in the business world, really, I'll call them integrity moments. <laughs> and you had several of those. Um, and you had been kind enough to share them with me and how they sort of shaped your thinking and um, who you are as a person and the, the person you wanted to be and become. And I actually think that before we get into talking about your own research, which was celebrated by the Academy of Management, that if you don't mind, I'd love it if you'd share some of your own business story with the audience, because I have a feeling it impacted um, as well some of your own research later on. It did. I, after I graduated with my MBA, I was very fortunate uh, to get picked up and had the opportunity to work with two multinationals, which gave me a lot of opportunity. I was in the arena of international business mm -hmm. and international marketing, developing some shared collaborations with people. And I spent a lot of my time in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Africa, and you know, doing business at that time, the world was very interesting because the kind of free trade ease of doing business that we see today, relatively speaking, didn't exist at that time. We lived in an era of apartheid. Uh, there were a lot of challenges. Um, and in many countries, the government was a major buyer and it was hard to make sales or get business done without 
people engaging in corruption or bribery. Mm -hmm. uh, the bribery was endemic. There may have been a country that if you landed and you were going through customs, if you were unwilling to bribe somebody in the customs, they may find drugs in your bag. There were situations that if you were not willing to pay bribes, your cargo at your port may not get cleared in a timely manner. Mm -hmm. But especially when you were bidding for organizations or government contracts, there were a lot of challenges over there. And I was exposed to a lot of issues which I saw happening in the marketplace. Right. And some of the people who were very keen players or key players in that tradition, and I would talk to them because at that time, I was honed on a tradition that it's business, you're doing things for the company. So you don't naturally develop, a, or at least I did not naturally develop a dislike for people who were engaging in activities that at least I'm glad even at that time I knew were not right. And when you talk to them, one of the things that really struck me was that these were not evil people. These were not bad people. Most of them were not making any money. They just were doing business as usual. Mm -hmm. And I had begun to wonder at that time, uh, how do people who are otherwise very good, who go and raise their kids, teach them all the you know, principles or the 10 commandments, don't realize that they are breaking those same things. They are doing something which is contrary to that. Um, and, and I had some personal experiences where um, I was specifically asked for things which mortified me when I was dealing with some government officials. And I began to wonder that, how is it that people can ask for things like that? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I remember a government official, uh, I mean, they crossed all limits of decency at times and it made me wonder, how do you do that? And then you go home and you raise your kids and you go to a, you know, a church or a mosque or a temple, how do you square that in your head? And that oftentimes became the basis of some of the research that my colleagues and I did. With the rise in um, sort of the, you know, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and here in the United States at least and uh, other governments having sort of the countries having the same kind of laws, do you think that it has gotten better? It has gotten better, but, um, and it's one of the things that when I was thinking about this podcast, some of the things that I encountered seem to have gotten a lot better. Uh, definitely in terms of transparency with respect to accounting, right. things are a lot better. The FCPA has made it harder, more than the FCPA, because the FCPA existed when I was there, but the anti-bribery convention that the European countries and right. Japan have joined in. That has clearly made a difference. Social media and a free media has made a big difference. Yeah. Um, 
But new challenges seem to come up with respect to ethics. Uh, today, we are not necessarily talking about corruption and favors as much. We are talking about, is it ethical, for instance, to share and collect data, consumer right. data? Yes. So the challenges are different. Um, is it appropriate to conform to a country's laws if they conflict with the values of a different country? Um, these are challenges that companies like Google and Facebook face. Yes, they do. So, um, so the, it's just almost as though the whole issue has shifted into a different set of arenas. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. But the one thing that I think has remained the same is this sense of uh, the, the, the white collar business aspect of ethics, meaning that it, it isn't it's different than if somebody were just to go in and say rob a bank. I mean, there's a there's a clear um, victim in that case, and there's you know a, a, a clear perpetrator, and you can cl clearly identify um, you know that something bad happened. But when you're talking about corruption, where an individual might not personally uh, benefit from it, right? It's just helping the company, or when you're collecting data again, and it's you know broad. Um, consumers you're collecting the data from it the the perpetration if you will of the unethical behavior becomes attenuated from who the victims are and it becomes harder to crystallize that in in your mind which can oftentimes be one of those rationalizations <laughs> uh the victimless victimless crime if you will that um causes people to have the mindset of, okay, I can do this because this is how you have to do business, but now I'm going to go home to my family. Kind of that disconnect, that discord that you were mentioning before. Right. Yeah. So, so, so with that, let's talk then a little bit about your article um, that won accolades from the um, Academy of Management, which still has relevance today because in that article, you do talk about rationalization tactics and you talk about socialization processes that can allow um, any type really of unethical behavior to exist in organizations. So can you just share with the audience what, what do you mean when you say rationalization tactics and what are some of those? So, um, you know, as I had mentioned a little earlier, one of the challenges that drove our thinking into this was why is it that people who are otherwise who would define themselves as very moral individuals uh -huh. uh, why would they do something which was wrong and as we started digging into research which went as far back as work done at the uh, at nuremberg after world war ii into the nazis worked by some psychologists and sociologists uh, individuals develop ways of thinking, mental tactics as we call them, which make something which is unethical appear to be ethical. Or hmm. so uh, there are various forms of it. Uh, you know, the paper that you're referring to is actually a practitioner version of a larger body of research we had done, which was published in Research in Organizational Behavior, where we had identified 13 
uh, rationalization tactics. I think eight were presented in this article. Mm -hmm. uh, so you would have a situation like a denial of victim. Uh, so for instance, when traders were taking advantage of the older people and getting them to invest in stocks that they knew they were dug, they wouldn't talk. Uh, when they were discussing those people amongst themselves, they would never really refer to them as Mrs. Smith or Mrs. So-and-so. It was always, oh, these patsies, these ignorance. What you have done is you have dehumanized the people. Right in some ways so that you don't even think of them as people. So right. you're denying that there's any victim in some way. That's You've right. depersonalized that so much. The right. most extreme form could be, you know, situations like Auschwitz or anything where sure. people were completely stripped of their humanity sure. in the way they, before you made a decision to gas them. Um, and, but at smaller levels, we start thinking of, oh, these are suckers. So these are, you don't think of the people you're hurting as people. Right. That would be one way of thinking it, thinking about it. Another rationalization could be what we call denial of harm. Right. You know, this company makes billions of dollars. So what if I sto stole a screwdriver? No one is really hurt by it. Right. Right. So in your mind, you're not doing anything wrong because the company can apparently afford it. Right. Or we are just putting, changing some numbers on an accounting balance sheet. That doesn't hurt anyone. Right. And, um, and, and so that would be a denial of harm. Or it could be that, you know, I'm contributing so much to charities. If I have taken a little from here, um, that's okay because I'm more than compensating for it. That would be a balancing the ledger approach. That would be another form of a rationalization. So there are multiple ways. And we often, the more we surround ourselves with people who use these, the more the use of these rationalizations um, becomes embedded in our brain and it seems okay to use them because the people we socialize with also, and we call this a social cocoon, have the same ways of thinking. Uh -huh. So nobody challenges us. And if you see that in many of the places where we've examined companies which had normalized corruption, the perpetrators hung out with people who used the same language and same way of thinking as them so that nobody could ever prick that balloon they had built for themselves. Interesting, social cocoon, interesting. Yeah. And so that, that, that you referred to that as when they were uh, the people they associated with even outside the company. That's right. Yeah. And, and that's something we saw. So for instance, one of the most egregious cases we had seen was uh, uh, you may recall the sexual harassment, widespread, widespread sexual har harassment that had happened at Mitsubishi's plant in normal Illinois. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people when they were who were perpetrators from what I had read would be also socializing after hours and yeah. describing. And so it all looked normal because everybody around me thinks it's okay. Is that an example then of the socialization processes that you talked about in your article as no, well? No, the socialization processes. So I think our focus 
in our original research um, was, you know, that if there are certain organizations where corruption goes on for a long time, and how will that happen? Because you can under explain single acts of unethical behavior because there was a bad person. Uh -huh. But if it's gone on in an organization for six years, new people were coming in who uh -huh. may not have had the same values, but somehow they bought into that system. Right. So what we found was that many of these organizations or the subunits, they developed unique processes through which when newcomers entered the organization, they were socialized. And there were three that we identified, I think, in both the papers. Um, one was uh, co-optation. So let's just say that there is a practice within a subunit that of padding your expense reports when you've gone traveling. Mm -hmm. And hints are dropped that it's done. And then when someone does it, the person may get a pat on the back or something, uh, some sort of reward. There is this promise that if they buy in, they will become part of the unit. They will have access to better resources. And they may even be, because they are part of the system, they'll get promoted faster. Right. So there are these intangible links that are created uh, that if you did it, you'd see the advantage. And then you could have incrementalism. I think in the paper, we use the example which we had found about when the corruption scandals in the New York police were unearthed. I think it was in the 1970s that when newcomers came in and some of the police officers had been taking bribes from store owners and other things. Uh -huh that initially the rookie would be told, oh, it's a common practice that they'll give us a pack of cigarettes or so. And, mm -hmm. you know, taking a pack of cigarette doesn't seem so bad. Right. So the rookie would be asked to do that. And then when they got used to that, they said, oh, maybe a cigarette and something to eat. Mm. And then when you became conscious to that, it may go into actually taking money so you introduce the rookie in steps so that it's just a small deviation then you get used to it and then another smaller deviation that's a socialization practice called incrementalism that's great which understood is often used in corrupt subunits there's compromise and this is the tricky one so i think the example we had used was a story about uh, about a manager of a company which had to keep their pollution under check. But if they were to do that, their costs would go so much that the unit could be shut down. And the manager was um, really concerned because felt himself responsible for the employees, didn't want them to lose their jobs, knew right, that it would right. cause a lot of suffering so would ensure that he would leak some of the effluence out into um, the river at night when no one noticed to keep the costs low. Um, and he, this was being just being stuck in a very hard place. And, um, and oftentimes people are, when 
in an organizational unit, something unethical like that is happening, uh, the rookie can be put in, an, in a situation where they have to choose between two alternatives. Yes. And they tend to make the unethical choice because of their loyalty to a group or to their family or something. Yeah. yeah. And then once you've done it two or three times, then naturally you are going to become, a, you will naturally defend the practices you are doing. So it leads to a sustained process of corruption in a subunit. So yeah, there were three socialization tactics. Yeah. We actually, in the original paper, we had talked about three pillars of normalized corruption. The third one was institutionalization because once an unethical practice has gone on for a long time because right. of socialization and rationalization, it actually gets built into the systems, the paperwork and everything gets mm -hmm. uh, adjusted to support it. So, and once you have that happening, the people who are perpetuating that practice um, don't, even know that they are contributing to corruption. People are not even conscious of what's happening. They just enact mindlessly. Mm -hmm. And rooting something like this becomes pretty hard. Yeah. So those socialization processes are things that I think are very relevant for new young business managers to be aware of uh, when they you know, enter their subunit or department to kind of be on the, the lookout for and have their, their radar up the you know for practices where they're being co-opted into doing something that that they know is wrong um, but feel like they need to do it to be accepted or you know the small incremental steps um, that they take or the having to choose between one or the other and trying to figure out how do I compromise between the two right oh um, yeah yeah so very no, no, very so because what do you think it are the three, let's say, most important things that business schools can do to better prepare business students to enter this uh, disruptive business world we live in now and, and still manage ethically? I'm a strong believer that giving lectures and making people read books and then answering questions and multiple choice exams in some ways is a disservice because we make the concept of ethics and values as just another exam to be answered. Uh, I'm a strong believer that we have to try and bring in experiential activities, yes. whether it is simulations, working on projects, and then as they make decisions, focus them on the dilemmas and other situations that they didn't even think about yeah. as they were making decisions yeah. and ask them to have discussions subsequent to that. For somebody to realize that, oops, I was think doing this and I hadn't even thought of the ethical implications is a lesson they will carry with them for years uh, later. I agree. And our objective of education has to be to create change in the actions and thoughts they will have after graduation, not worry so much about the exam part of it. The second thing, and I've seen you do a lot of this is, you know, it's one thing to get a lecture from a lecture from one of the professors, you know, students at some 
stage learn to tune us out, tune us out. But bring in people who've had challenges with ethical dilemmas. I believe that you brought in a gentleman who right. has suffered yeah. serious consequences because right. of his actions. Come in and tell them, this is what I did. This is why I did it. Mm -hmm. I know from experience, those are things that last with students. Mm -hmm. right. And then the third thing is for me is the concept of ethics is not a subject. It has to be embedded yes. in the system. Just like when I say that corruption can get embedded, good values and ethics can also get embedded. So in my point of, from my way of thinking, we need to be, if we are teaching them accounting, we have to be teaching them what are some of the challenges they will face as auditors. As, right, right, right. If we are teaching them strategy, we have to talk, teach them the ethical aspects, ethical principles and values. I think our objective when we are teaching them has to be to measure that do they have a preset set of values at the time they graduate, mm -hmm. which will guide their decision-making mm -hmm. mm -hmm. when they are working in organizations. And I think for that, it has to be more systemic as opposed to being a course they take in one semester in a four-year right. or a two-year right. program. Right. So, yeah. so that's what I believe universities can and should do, because I think as a society, the cost of unethical behavior is now becoming yeah. unbearable. Yeah, it's very high. I would agree. Yeah. So we've talked about how um, business ethics has changed over the years. I mean, it wasn't really thought about the way it is now 25, 30 years ago. Um, then it kind of went through and we're still dealing with some corruption today, but now it's kind of morphed into this dealing with collection of data and how do you deal with artificial intelligence in an ethical way. So, so the field itself is, and the issues are morphing and changing. If you had a crystal ball and were able to predict, so this is your time to be the wizard on the hill. <laughs> and if you were to sit back and think about where you think business ethics will be in the future, in the next 25 years, let's say, what are the three words or themes that you think would best describe business ethics in the future? I think it's hard to distinguish what I think it will be and what I hope it will be. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if my answer is, I think it's somewhere in between. Okay. I'll begin with the first word I'll use as ubiquitous, that it is going to underlie almost everything we do because the world, the kind of change we are facing uh, in, world, in the world today is similar to what we faced at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Everything that we believe about how we act, how we do things, how things operate is changing very fast. Yes. Um, almost, I, I sometimes think the word singularity is very strong, but I think that that's the direction in which we are going. Instant knowledge, technology has changed how we uh, do things that today, if I was to talk something to my, if I was to say something to my dog, I'm not sure that Alexa won't hear that and I won't see an ad 
in my Facebook feed 10 minutes later. Right. I think there are some huge ethical challenges with respect to uh, the new technologies that are coming in. Right. And I think whether you're doing engineering, whether you're doing medicine, whether you're doing business, ethics has to be prevalent and embedded in every form of education. Yes. So I believe that that's what should happen and I think it will happen because we are conscious about it. The second word I would use is interdisciplinary. Uh, that we have spent too many years of focusing on ethics from, this is the box from which we have to look at it. Those boxes are vanishing. Yes. And are. if we are not respectful of the different ways of looking at ethics and integrating them in how we teach, I think we will be doing a disservice as educators and researchers. I think for me, the third word would be neo-traditional. That yes, while all these new things are coming in, the old concepts will continue to be relevant. Let's not diss the philosophical aspects because that's where we get our ways of thinking. That's where our values will evolve. Right, it's the we ground. Predict, yeah, we can't predict for our students that this is the ethical choice we can have. Right. What we can teach them is these are the ways you will have to think about your ethical choices. This is the way you have to develop your values. Yeah. So I think those are the three words that I would use. That's great. Those are those are very thoughtful. Oh, Vikas, this has been a fabulous conversation and I want to end on, on sort of a, a fun note. Um, and you can think kind of mainstream media here, but have you been reading or watching or listening to anything lately just for fun, but that um, also sort of has that ethical dilemma embedded in it that you could leave as a recommendation? So I just finished reading the biography of Andrew Carnegie. Okay. And... Uh, about 10 years ago, I had also read uh, Titan, which was the biography of John D. Rockefeller. Now, Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller, very different people, but in one way, they were very similar. They wanted to earn money so that they could give it away to do good. Yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. Andrew Carnegie had the intention of giving away 90% of his wealth. By the time he was 65, he invested in the museums, libraries. That was a passion for him in America and in England and Scotland. The challenge was that that allowed him to justify how he made his money. It was the same thing with John D. Rockefeller. And Oftentimes, when I read some of the papers he wrote at the time of some of the really harsh tactics he used to break up the labor strikes, the hard-nosed bargaining where he would not budge from the 12-hour workday six to seven days a week, uh, some of the suggestions he gave to his managers on how to take down the workers, on the assumption that the more money he makes, the more good he can do to the world. To me, it was a very interesting dilemma. 
Mm. that here was somebody who was focusing on the one hand that he has to maximize the return from the capital. And he's he is controversial today. We forget some of the things both of them went through, especially with respect to the labor strikes and the actions that happened over there. Uh, how do you handle that? I mean, was that good? Was that bad? Yeah. Because he did do a lot of good to a lot of subsequent sure. generations. Yes. I still consider going to the Carnegie Museums in Pittsburgh as one of the most educational experiences I've had. Mm -hmm. I plan to take my kids again over there. Right. Um, very interesting dilemma. And those are two books that I do recommend. And I'm, I'm not taking a position about right or wrong. Right, but right. Certainly a huge dilemma. Yeah. Um, I'm reading another book, it should be around here, but uh, it's cast by that was uh, Isabel Wilkerson, where she tries to relate the challenges of how we have, in effect, what she's saying is that there is no difference between the caste systems of India and the racial tensions and racial categories we have created in oh, wow. America. How interesting. And how some of the policies that existed in Southern United States, and I'm only 75% of the way through the book, yeah. um, uh, were actually the basis for some of the laws enacted by the Nazis in 1935. Uh, I will say that as somebody who has been on every side of the equation. I am what would be considered an upper caste in India. Have I done some things now when I think back, especially after reading that book that were insensitive, did not value people of a different caste as highly as I should have? Uh -huh. Absolutely. Do I think that I'm a casteist or I think differently of people? I've always believed I'm very open and yet it has opened my eyes. Uh, so, so those are three books that. Wow, that's great. Uh, I would recommend at this point. So good. Well, thank you. Well, Vikas, this has just been a treat to have this time and for you to be able to to share your words of wisdom and your thoughts on this topic with me and with our audience. And I just want to thank you so so much for your time today. It's been fabulous. Thank you so much, Cindy. I really enjoyed this and I appreciate being invited. Thank Absolutely. You. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.